football poop is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast, Steve Palazzolo, back here with Sam Monson, reviewing all things divisional round. But first, don't forget, all first-time depositors at Monkey Knife Fight that put at least $20 into their account while using the promo code PFF will receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's right, $40 of value for just $20, and you get the opportunity to turn the $20 into even more money playing daily fantasy and prop games at one of the fastest-growing fantasy sports sites in the country. It's Monkey Knife Fight. So go to Monkey Knife Fight right now. Deposit your $20. Use the promo code PFF today to receive your free PFF Edge annual subscription. We also have a deal for PFF Elite. You can get Elite Annual using the promo code ACTION to receive a year of Elite subscription access and one year of Action Pro subscription access for just $199.99. Action Pro is Action Network's premium subscription offering tailor-made to make avid and new bettors better. This is a limited-time offer that only goes through the Super Bowl February 7th, 2021. The offer also only applies to first-time elite annual subscribers. All right, Sam, let's get into the action. It's an action-packed show here because, yes, we're going to go through the divisional round. We'll go through the other top NFL storylines. But also we have Cowboys defensive coordinator Dan Quinn recorded an interview a couple days ago and. uh I think some interesting nuggets in that one, especially for Cowboys fans. Yeah, he's uh, an interesting guy. Some cool stuff from there. And, of course, topical because the guy just got himself a new NFL gig. He did. And, of course, where else are you going to you know, go talk about it? He but was the- live from the star, right? He was That was the facility, right? <sighs> Couldn't tell. It's a lot of glass and it looked very shiny. That's the kind of Cowboys yeah, facility style. He could have a really nice office, though. I mean, true. He was all, you know, wearing his Cowboys gear. Oh, he was all geared I meant up. to ask him, like, at what point when you sign one of those things, do they just throw you, like, a bag of crap to wear for the next, you know, X number of years? As a former professional player, yeah. they just throw it all in your locker, I believe. It's like day one. It's just there? Yeah, your okay. stuff in your locker. Okay. And you just thought, you know, look what I got this year. I got some a Giants turtleneck. I've got a lot of Giants turtlenecks. God, we are starting early. That's a square for the bingo already filled in. Oh, my gosh. The PFF NFL podcast bingo is taken off online and you are very sensitive so i cannot wait i can't say anything now there are a lot of people telling you things that you uh say a lot yeah and you're uh you better watch out so we're gonna we're gonna keep an eye on it's it. gonna be like peyton manning over here i'm gonna completely rework my entire pattern or speech now on the fly so i don't say any of the things that hit the bingo yeah we'll see how that goes anyway let's get through the action starting on saturday rams at the packers packers win 32 to 18 Man, this was impressive, I think, from the Packers, especially we talked so much about the Rams' defense, how good they've been all season. The Packers had answers very much in the run game and the short passing attack, which is where you need to beat the Rams, and they did a great job of it. They did. Um, this was the first game for a while where, you know, Green Bay's offense 
kept on going. It didn't have a period where it just switched off for a couple of quarters and you wonder, you know, why why can't they put together this complete game for 60 minutes? They did. They did it against the Rams defense, which has been the best defense in the NFL this season. Okay, Aaron Donald wasn't 100%, but Aaron Donald isn't the difference between that scoreline and, you know, the Rams winning. He definitely made their life easier when you didn't have to contend with a fully healthy Aaron Donald, but uh, it was impressive how uh, comfortable they found it. Like, Aaron Donald, one total pressure, a PFF grade of 53, his lowest of the season. So it was definitely a factor, but I don't think it was the determining factor. Yeah, I'll also say, I mean, Aaron Rodgers was only pressured on nine dropbacks. That that part is a factor, nine out of 37. The other interesting thing, if you have PFF Elite Premium Stats, you go check out Aaron Rodgers and his passing chart. He only completed uh, five passes beyond 10 yards. One was dropped with Alan Lazard down the field, but only five completions at 10-plus yards, and there weren't that many attempts. Usually that's a recipe for you know, trouble offensively. But again, we keep talking about how the Rams defense led by Brandon Staley, who's now going to the Chargers. We'll talk about him in a minute. Do They do such a good job generally of discouraging the downfield passing attack. But the Rodgers and the Packers had an answer when they hit the deep post late in the game to seal the deal. Um, but it was the horizontal stuff, the underneath stuff that was there. And then the rushing attack, right? Because the Rams play so much too high. Seven men in the box. The Packers ran for 174 yards against light boxes, seven or fewer men in the box that was the difference in the game yeah like when you sort of describe what this um brandon staley rams defense does and brandon staley it's good enough that it a was the best defense in the nfl this season and b got staley a head coaching job just three minutes after being in the building um it it sounds really simple to counter right like they're going to play a lot of two high safeties they're going to essentially discourage you from throwing deep so okay throw shallow and run the ball Right, those are the two things that you should do, and at some point you'll open up a deep shot just because you're killing them that way. Um, but teams have not been able to do that particularly well. A couple of teams have had success against them, and they've been teams that have been good at doing that. Like the 49ers have had a weird amount of success against the Rams because they don't care that you have really good coverage. They're not really going to test it anyway. They're going to throw a million short passes and screens and jet motion and everything they do is after the catch anyway, so it doesn't matter to them the Jalen Ramsey is standing eight yards off the line of scrimmage. It's just not a factor in what they're doing. So Green Bay, they sort of showed up with the game plan that in theory is supposed to work against this defense, and they were good and efficient enough to make it happen. And I think the the point you made in terms of it did open up a deep shot, and it actually opened up more than one. Alan Lazard you know, dropped another one that would have been a, a big play as well. Like It was the perfect game plan against that defense, and it really worked. Yeah, I'm going to use the word patient when I talk about the Chiefs' offense and how they played against the Browns, but I thought the Packers were were that as well, right? You're a patient, and I think that is what the the best quarterbacks of all time do, right? Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Brady and Breeze, and those guys who are capable of creating big plays down the field. It's not just chucking it down the field all the time. Aaron Rodgers has the greatest one of the greatest highlight reels of all time, but this was just make decision after decision after decision, hit open throws underneath, and you know let Aaron Jones go for 99 yards including a 60 yarder uh Rodgers did get away with a couple passes at the end of the half but that was pretty much it he did yeah. try to turn it over so on back sequence play. yeah wasn't it um I think defense is trending that way in the NFL right it used to be I mean every press conference right we're going to be aggressive we're going to be like 
er, defense yeah. used to be about coming after you in a major way and now i think a lot of defense is actually trending the opposite way which is we're going to sit back and we're going to give you the easy stuff and we're going to bank on the fact that you don't have the patience to execute a 12 play 65 yard drive that takes up most of the quarter because most people don't and eventually most quarterbacks just get frustrated with that and they take a shot when you take a shot against the deep coverage that we're playing that's when we make our money and create the turnover and cause you problems um but rogers obviously is one of the quarterbacks that generally does have the patience to do that and you know tom brady obviously is the archetype of that style of offense for years there aren't that many guys that that are prepared to play like that without making the mistake um but that's what the packers did as you say outside of that bizarre sequence where they tried to throw it away twice in in back-to-back plays yeah i mean rogers was almost flawless i think other than the two again back-to-back plays that were dropped interceptions at the end of the first half what i say bingo other than you know the critical element of this there it's not bingo yeah it is no Uh, if i said rogers is the has the highest grade other than weeks two nine and 15 take out anyway yeah which is why is like his grade is like 80 right which is a good number despite back-to-back turnover worthy like horrific throws which is actually quite impressive and difficult to do here's an interesting trend for the packers right now rashawn gary yeah. third straight really good game he was the best pass rusher on the field for both teams seven pressures including two sacks 85.4 pass rush grade he now starting in week 16 against tennessee he had a 90 grade in back-to-back games week 16 and 17 this week 81 grade uh led mostly by his pass rush so Rashawn Gary the guy that we said look production wise coming out of Michigan first round pick just doesn't match up he's got all the tools is it going to take time for him to develop is that could be one of the big storylines here the fact that Gary uh might be blooming right before our eyes during this playoff run for the Packers that was huge him and Zadarius Smith led the Packers with seven pressures apiece yeah, who had another big game. Like, Zadarius Smith is sort of starting to tick back towards Zadarius Smith of last year, which would be huge. Like, he's been good this year, but nothing like the league-leading pressure getter from a season ago. If he, if that guy is here for the duration of the playoffs, that's a significant mo- needle mover, as is Rashawn Gary playing well. Um, as for whether the light has gone on versus having a Hassan Reddick-esque random spurt of extremely productive play in the middle of like year four for him uh i would remain on the fence and then as far as the packers playmakers go you we know how difficult Devonte adams is to cover you know robert tunyon continues to be a guy that just gets open caught all four of his targets for 60 yards and alan lazard even though he had the big drop um had the had the long touchdown as well he you know for a, a monster receiver who's not really that fast finds a way to get behind the defense and him and Valdez Scantling are just really good compliments in this offense to what Adams and Tunyon bring and you know Rodgers continues to find them yeah and Lazard I think in particular is really important to that offense like I think he is that viable secondary threat to Devontae Adams the interesting thing with Adams though this game I think showed the difference between the Packers offense this year and previous seasons Uh, both last year with the current regime and more in particular Mike McCarthy's offense before he left like before they would have just gone all right we have Devontae Adams we have uh versus Jalen Ramsey we think Adams is better we're just going to get him the ball and see how it works right in this game the touchdown 
was like schemed up with motion and to get him away from Ramsey, right? Yeah. We're going to move him pre-snap. We're going to get him to the other side of the formation. We're going to cause problems in this Rams defense. And even though we think he'll probably win one-on-one anyway, we're going to make sure that like he has scheme help so he doesn't have to. So I think that should, like one of the evolutions of this offense this year has been embracing those things like pre-snap motion and all the free, easy, cheap wins that they give you without just saying we're, we're going to go and put our best player against your best player and hope that he wins. And if he doesn't, that's where we have some issues. So that touchdown, I think, is a great example of the difference between this Packers offense and previous iterations. They might have a guy that could win one-on-one against Ramsey all day long anyway. And they said, even though, we, even though that's the case, why should we ask him to? Like, let's give him a free play where he gets a touchdown without needing to beat the guy one-on-one. Yeah, that was – oh, man, that was a great play. Really well schemed up. And, you know, I think all year, Rodgers – there's a balance – there's a reason why we don't just look at touchdown numbers and say this guy's great because he had 40-something touchdowns. Rodgers, our highest-graded quarterback and was the best throw-for-throw throw quarterback in the NFL. However, he also had so many freebie touchdowns this year, including the one to Devontae Adams from the one-yard line. And the Packers, LaFleur, the, 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 everything was just spectacular as far as scheming it up. I also think they were so aggressive down there where a lot of teams, they get to second, you know, they get to first and goal from the two or from the one, and they'll run a run play, and then you kind of feel like, okay, play action's coming next. They attack with the pass early, right? Get your, get your best pass play out there first, and, you know, that's when the defense is most vulnerable. I think they've done a great job of just scheming it up um, in the tight, tight red zone, and that's why part of the reason why Rodgers had, has 50 touchdowns now, including the two in the playoffs. So, look – I think coming out of this, Packers look like the cleanest team just because of Mahomes' injury. Packers are the cleanest team coming out of divisional round, are they not? Uh, we don't anticipate Mahomes' injury being a future problem, though, right? No, like but he's, he's got the toe injury. He was banged up. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying he's going to be like woozy next. Like obviously, week. if the Chiefs have Chad Henne at quarterback, they're not the best team left. If they don't, I still think they are. All right, so the Chiefs are still the best team. I don't know. The Packers are looking. Pretty smooth, and it's uh, snow potentially next week at Lambeau yes. for Brady and Rogers. Should now we're be, talking. Should be a nice little matchup. Let's get to Saturday night, Bills Ravens. Um, what do you think of this game? Because I know you know fans don't like when there's not a lot of points scored, but I thought mm-hmm. it was. I kind of like a struggle every now and again. Yeah, it was a good football so game. I have no problem with a defense with a defensive battle, low scoring game. The only games I don't like is if it's low scoring where it's the reason it's low scoring is because everybody is incompetent. Bad right? offense. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it's just like a shit show of fumbles and turnovers and crappy execution. And like it's, it's just a bad product being put out there. Right. College does this a lot. Right. Where it's like Oof. it's low scoring, not because anybody's playing good defense, because just everybody trying to score is bad. Um, so I'm all for a game that's just good defense and teams being put in a bad situation and forced mistakes not being able to execute because of that and this was one of those games like buffalo's defense took a lot of crap earlier in the season when they were you know not necessarily playing particularly well but they always had this in their bag like the chiefs where they don't need to be great they just need to be able to cause you some problems and game plan and you know win a few drives here and there now they did a lot better than that this week but they haven't become like an all-world you know, Los Angeles Rams defense overnight, they've just elevated enough and are schemed up well enough to essentially mess with your primary game plan. 
What did you think of the Bills game plan? Having one running back <laughs> carry at the half. They had two carries total, one yeah. from Josh Allen, one from the running back. Allen had dropped back over 20 times. And we've seen these ga- th- we've seen this type of game plan a few times throughout history. It's usually the Patriots. It's yeah. usually the Patriots saying, "We're not trying to run against the Williams wall, Pat and uh Kyle. Kyle? No. Kevin. Kevin, jeez. Forgot his name for a minute. <laughs> Pat and Kevin. Back in 2006. That would have been another Williams wall. Yeah, this is another Williams wall. Pro Bowl, that probably happened, right? No. But this is a Patriots-like game plan. This is Brian Dable, offensive coordinator, who was in a lot of the head coaching mixes and might be again next year. What do you think of that game plan? Just chucking it around the field, even though it only led to three points. Yeah, I. so I didn't hate it. Like, I don't don't have a problem with a game plan like that if you think it works and if you are seeing the look that makes it make sense. I didn't, like... Who was the commentary on this game? It wasn't the boss, was it? Am I about to shit on the boss? Somebody was saying like last yes. okay. Somebody was saying like last week that um you know the reason they're not running is By the because way, the boss bingo. Yeah. Somebody was saying that the reason they're not running is like last week this defense held Derrick Henry to forty yards. Like I mean, okay, they did and they played really well, but that's not why Buffalo isn't running. Like they haven't gone into this game and gone they, they shut down Derrick Henry, so we don't even have a prayer. Let's throw out every run in the playbook. Like, we're just going to pass all day long. They, the, the Bills do, did this before, though. They yeah. did it against Seattle. That's what I mean. Like, this the isn't – they haven't taken a look at this and gone, if they held Derrick Henry to 40 yards, we're going to get minus eight, so we're not even going to try and run the ball this, this game. Let's just throw those out the window. We're going to pass all day on Josh Allen. They've just decided that this is the way to beat the Baltimore Ravens. And – you know, it isn't crazy. They they're better passing than they were running anyway. I'm. I, it feels like they've gone with the Mike Leach approach, right? Which is we're only going to run if they really offer it to us on a silver platter. And I'm surprised that that didn't result in more runs just by the nature of that that right. thing. But I'm not. I don't hate the game plan. Honestly, I think that's one of the bigger stories of the weekend is how offenses were adaptable because we're, we gave credit to the Packers for playing against the Rams scheme and running and working the short passing game. We'll get to the Bucks game in a minute where it felt like they may have run too much, but the Saints employed the same game plan that right. the Rams do, too high and invite the run. The Bills went out there, and I guess they dictated the action a little bit more, but it was in part because the Ravens do have a good defensive front, right? They do have uh, the horses up front from a defensive line standpoint to stop the run pretty well. Um, so, yeah, it didn't lead to points, but that was a futuristic – game plan where you might throw the ball 20 times and only run the ball once and honestly I think that's another big part of Josh Allen's development is is throwing early in early downs putting him into favorable situations and here's what we always say even at the uncomfortable passing attack that was only 5.6 yards per attempt a couple sacks in there that's still generally more efficient than <laughs> you know a great running attack that you know rushes for four and a half per carry right so that's that's part of the strategy of just, you know, chucking it around the yard. Yeah, I mean, you look, their best-graded player in the game was Stephon Diggs. Like, it makes sense, right? It's not crazy to go in that direction. As I say, I'm surprised that it resulted in such an extreme um, split, but it, it wasn't – there's no reason not to do that other than, like, hey, they say we should be balanced. Like, right. conventional wisdom has it that you run the ball more than this, therefore what we're doing is crazy. So the other thing that happened in this game, Josh Allen posted the lowest grade of his season. And there was that midseason lull, called a lull, whatever, where he wasn't as dominant as he had been in recent weeks. In the weather. The weather, right. And the injury, right. Hmm. Bill's fan, Sam. Mm-hmm. 
And the Bills found a way to win multiple ways. I, I think that's been the most redeeming quality of the Bills team this year is they did have games where the run was more appealing and they executed it well. They did have games where the defense stepped up against the Chargers and made up for some turnovers and deficiencies. The defense really stepped it up for the Bills. Also seemed like a weird game for the Ravens. Lamar, he'd go from efficient to taking a massive sack, and then it was like second and 25 or whatever it was, and they converted. It was this weird game where they'd kind of move the ball but just couldn't put it all together. And the real backbreaker, of course, was the – Red zone interception by Lamar where he just completely misread it. Yeah, that was bad. Um, this It was interesting because the, the Bills' defense in this was exactly the kind of thing we've been talking about with the Chiefs and with other defenses that it's bend but don't break, and then all you need is that one play at the critical time, right? Yep. And they kept – like they held Baltimore to three points because they kept getting the critical play at the critical moment. It's like they were – again, you said they were allowing them to move the ball a reasonable amount. And then just on a, like a critical third down play or whatever, they just kept finding the right play to show up with a big play and cause Baltimore problems. And like it, it sort of shows how little you actually need to win on defense in order to win on defense, right? To, the overall net win at the end of these drives can be based off an absurdly small number of plays where you actually get the better of the opposition. Uh, the other the other thing too about the Bills defense I think that has been a little different this year they rolled they they had eight different defensive linemen play at least 25 snaps 24 snaps so they're they're rotating a ton of dudes in there a ton of people a ton of that's dudes but not the Titans dudes um this is this is the best Bills pass rush in a few years and they had kind of been the opposite in recent years it was like Jerry Hughes was has been their highest graded pass rusher since 2013 really mm-hmm. And he hasn't had a ton of help along the way. Kyle Williams was one of the guys that helped him at a few years. Uh, but they, you know, having Quentin Jefferson had three pressures. Justin Zimmer had three pressures. Harrison Phillips had a couple. Mario Addison got in there. And Jerry Hughes had his six with two sacks. They're rotating a ton. They're going to need all of those guys against the Chiefs and have to, you know, find a way to get pressure. Um, but the point I'm trying to make, too, is in past years, the secondary was so good at, you know, avoiding big plays and everything. But they also got a little lucky right Tyler Huntley misses Marquise Brown on a deep ball where he absolutely a big play he torched Tredavious White and that's where sometimes you get the disconnect Tredavious White only gave up two catches for 31 yards but one of the incompletions was what should have been essentially a 75 yarder that's gonna that's yeah, gonna hurt a 75 yarder that could well have changed the outcome of this game like that was a really key moment that touchdown would have put Baltimore right back in it with enough time to work with um, yeah, that's a great example of like Tredavious White just absolutely blew that play, was torched, and they didn't connect. Um, I, it's it's interesting to know how much you blame the weather for that. Like that was, it looked like just a bad miss, but there was a lot of wind blowing. That, that's the kind of ball that could move in the air enough yes. to take it away from the receiver, particularly for two guys that aren't necessarily on the same wavelength generally, right? Because your backup quarterback that's only recently been elevated in the first place. Um, such an unfortunate play for Baltimore. It was it kind of typified this game, right? Like just things were bouncing away from the Ravens, whether it was on defense, whether it's Lamar getting hurt and getting knocked from the game. Your backup comes in, has the open shot, and just can't connect. We, um, I, I'm the 
I'm the weather guy, so oh, yeah? I'll give Josh Allen even more credit for putting up the numbers that he did playing in Buffalo, mm. given all the weather and the wind and all that stuff. It really – it's a big factor. And I saw somebody tweet about it too. It was like, man, put some even more respect on Jim Kelly's name through the years, yeah. the fact that he put up those passing. Like, it matters if you play in the Northeast the whole year, like you know, November and December games all the time versus playing in a dome or just in warm weather cities. And it's easy to, it's easy to notice the weather when it's – snow or heavy rain but you don't tend to notice when it's just wind right right? and yet wind when you play is the most difficult it's the obvious it's the one that causes the most problems right because it just it moves the ball in the air from where it was headed um the other thing in this game was and presumably this is wind related as well justin tucker suddenly becoming a normal kicker and like not just the metronomic robot that puts the ball straight down the middle every time guy misses a couple almost got himself a perfect uh, hat trick of both posts and then just need yeah. the crossbar <laughs> it's, yeah the uh the wind got him too yeah and that was that was crazy i mean look the nobody game, was more surprised than him right he had been plus when he when he hits his field goals they are dead center right they're, they're the right down the middle he doesn't have a whole bunch that just sneak in and there's a lot yeah there's a lot of kickers where you put it in the air and they're kind of watching like Ooh, and then it goes just inside the upright and was like yay great you know perfect kick whereas you're right. Tuckers go dead down the middle. There's no like debate as to whether this is going to go in or not. It's just, it's it's gonna go like it's perfect. Yeah. So look, the biggest play of the game was obviously Lamar misreading the underneath coverage, pick six. Yeah. At the goal line, uh, that you know that was it. That was the story of the game. The Ravens had an opportunity. Um, I do find it interesting that Lamar, who did not play nearly as a finish efficient this year versus last year. When he seemed to struggle, it was the same stuff that popped up a little bit on his college tape, which is just not seeing the underneath coverage very well. With his turnover-worthy play, everybody has different styles of turnover-worthy plays. His was firing at the linebackers and safeties underneath, and that showed up way more this year than it did last year in his MVP season. Just something to keep an eye on with Lamar. And then, of course, takes the big hit, gets concussed. He goes to the locker room. Tyler Huntley does, you know, what he can he was an efficient quarterback at Utah completed some passes but man that offense just didn't really have much of a shot after that yeah I know we so one of the things coming into this game was how much of Baltimore's resurgence was built off the fact that they just played a bunch of bad defenses that never took away anything they wanted to do and therefore made them look like the 2019 version of themselves and that continued against Tennessee because they're not good so the big question was going to be, all right, this is the first real defense they faced in a long time, probably like since that winning streak started. So what does that look like? And I mean, it doesn't look like they really fixed an awful lot of what was going wrong earlier in the season. The second they got challenged, I know they ran for a decent amount on the ground, but they weren't able to be as efficient as they needed off the bank of it. Lamar did have his problems. Um, complete random aside, but were you kind of surprised that Lamar wasn't able to make a tackle on the pick six? I thought he was going to get there, but I was, I was doing... Uh, I know there was a blocker in front of him, but like... That's what I was, I was doing commentary on it. I was like... Like, to whom? I was just screaming at the TV. Oh, okay. My wife, you know, just, oh my gosh, pick six. I was like, but Lamar's got him, but there's a Tredavious White. I think it was White, right? Yeah. Tredavious White's there, and you know, White's fast too. Yeah. And, um, you know, usually if you're the quarterback, you don't... You kind of have, you like, you hesitate a little bit. You, you know, you threw the ball, but like you're a little stunned and then you, then you get going. But yeah, I, 
thought that I thought White had the angle to cut him off, so I wasn't that. I mean, surprised. he did. He at had first, the angle. I was like Lamar could get him, but yeah, White had the angle. To he had the angle to block him, but at the same time, you're Lamar. Like you make people miss for a living. I mean, you can't you can't do it the other way and get a guy trying to block you. Yeah, that's a different dynamic. And then at you're the not, end, he cuts back inside. You're just thinking, I got to go as fast as I can to cut this dude off from getting to the end zone. You're not thinking about juking a I think he'd already cut him. him. He'd already cut him off. He just needed to stay in front of him. And instead, he tried to cut back underneath and just gives him the end zone. I, I thought he had a shot at first. But yeah, Tredavious White got there. So, man, um, look, I think the Bills found a way to win in a different way. And I think that's huge. I think that was absolutely huge. They're going to need their defense playing like this against the Chad Henney or Patrick Mahomes <laughs> Chiefs. Bills have a shot next week if it's Mahomes. Yeah. Yeah, they do. It's, I mean, it's a good game. We right now, four of the top five graded quarterbacks are all in the playoffs. And the other one is trying to get out of his team. Yeah, Watson. Yeah. Remind me at the end. We have, to, we have to do this. We have to talk Watson, and we'll talk Brandon Staley just okay. a little bit. Let's go Chiefs-Browns. This game, man, it did feel like, and you were texting me as always, the Browns are settling for field goals. The Chiefs are, you know, continuing to march the ball down the field. I thought this it game felt, was done yeah. way before it was. Felt like the Browns were going to let it slip away. I think that's the beauty of the Browns this year, plus the Mahomes injury, of course. Technically helped, but the Browns know how to hang tough. They have enough offense to, to hang a little bit, and man, they made it into a pretty good game. They did, yeah. I mean, it felt early that, I mean, right from the, the start, really, when Kansas City scores a touchdown, Cleveland answers with a field goal, and they're like, okay, points on the board is nice. On the other hand, if, if Kansas City go down and score another touchdown now, suddenly you're already in a double-digit hole, and that's not getting any easier over the course of the game. And it's, it's the way it felt like it was going. Like, Kansas City was putting out points, and Cleveland just wasn't getting it sorted in the first half. And you're like, you don't... You probably don't have this kind of margin for error to play with against this team. You're going to need to score at some point. Um, and then, like, the critical play, the Rashad Higgins fumble into the end zone that turned a touchdown that would have put the Browns right back in it then into a Kansas City possession um, felt like at the time, all right, that's game over. Now, the Browns came back and made it a hell of a lot closer than it was supposed to be, and ultimately that score ended up being the difference between the two. But right at the time, that play felt like a dagger play for them. All right, discuss the rule. Mo I think eighty percent of the football fans detest yeah. the fumble out of the end zone, losing possession. Um, I've been back and forth on it, as usual. <laughs> you have a pretty strong take that you don't care for. You don't I care just, about the rule. It's fine. I don't it? Yeah. Every time it comes up, everyone's like, this is the worst rule in sports. It isn't, for a start. It's not even close. It's not even the worst rule in football, let alone the worst rule in sports. Um, there's nothing – there isn't anything wrong with the rule, right? The end zone and the line uh, – the, the goal line is an important and unique demarcation on the football field, and therefore it matters if you fumble the ball out that way. And this only happens, remember, if you fumble the ball in the end zone and don't recover it. Right? Obviously, if the defense recovers it, they get the ball. But if it goes out of bounds because you fumbled it into the end zone, that's what we're talking about here, which is kind of important. Like, if you've accidentally lost the ball into the end zone, it should matter. Why should you get a do-over because you threw it into the end zone at the back of it? Now, it's because when you look at the field and you're like, 
oh yeah, you got to take care of the ball, take care of the ball. But you can take care of the ball. If you lose it at the one, you're okay. Back to the one. Lose right. it at the two, you get it back to the two. It's when you lose it out of the end zone and completely lose the football. Mm-hmm. And there's people who want to say, okay, give it to him at the one, give it to him at the five. I've seen some bad takes out there too, which is like, oh, if you do that, teams are going to try to fumble through the end zone. Like, what do you? No, they're not. Um, putting it back at the twenty, I think is probably the most reasonable one that I've seen. So you fumble through the end zone, you don't lose possession, but you lose 20 yards of field position. That's the most reasonable one because, on the other hand, the defense didn't earn anything either, right? Uh, like, I, the defense didn't earn... Except the fumble. The ball. I mean, presumably, but but they should... <laughs> Here's the thing, right? But it's the same exact thing... If you're able... If the de- but listen, the, if the... De- there's. Essentially, you're rewarding the defense the same way as if they recovered it in the end zone. We, if they recovered in the end zone, they get a touchback. If it happens to go out of bounds, they also get a touchback. That's uneven too, right? Okay. But what? So what is the alternative? Is you put it back at the 20 and you say it didn't really count, carry on with your drive. Like, the, if you're able to score by simply breaking the plane of the end zone with the ball, regardless of what happens like immediately after – you have to accept some kind of balance to that, which is, all right, if you, if you extend like that and you screw it up, you might lose the ball. Yeah. And this isn't like you're going to lose the ball. You, you know, you can extend like that. You can fumble it away. You can recover. They, like, whatever. There's a lot of things that can happen, and you can still get the ball back. This is literally only if you make that gamble that I think I can break the plane with this football and you get it wrong to the tune of losing the ball out of the end zone, you lose the ball. It's simple. I don't. I don't have any problem with that. It's a risk you take when you try and extend the ball for the touchdown, and sometimes it goes wrong. And when it goes wrong, it's it's painful. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't hate it because of that because I don't I don't think the offense needs to be rewarded either. So I'm not as Parti- yeah. upset, particularly about in the this rule. world of like all offense all the time. Like defenses are already being hamstrung with every single rule that's happening right now. Give them something. Give them this tiny bounce of the ball every now and again that happens, what, a couple of times a season. Let's give them that. The other thing is, like, forget the rule. If you're going to whinge about anything on this play, whinge about the fact that Daniel Sorensen launched himself face first like a missile into the head that of was Rashad the Higgins, yeah. and that got ignored. Like, if you're going to complain about a rule change, make that reviewable so that you can pull up the replay and go, oh, you know what? That's targeting. Oh, I don't we should that. probably call that. I don't want the targeting reviews because everything looks bad in, in slow motion. That here's, looks really bad. Though. Here's my take on the play. As it was. There's about a minute 40 left at the end of the first half. <laughs> the biggest mistake. <laughs> this is the most ridiculous take I've ever heard. This is the correct take. <laughs> the biggest mistake the Browns and Rashad Higgins made was trying to score a touchdown. The biggest mistake. Because it's first down. They have a great pass. Mm-hmm. Higgins should have been thrilled to get to the one-yard line and run a little bit more clock. You're, there's an 85 90% chance you're going to score a touchdown anyway, and you don't give the ball back to the Chiefs. That's how dynamic the Chiefs' offense is. And we saw it. They went down and scored, kicked a field goal. When you are trying to score at the end of the half against the Chiefs, even if you score a touchdown – you should just assume they're going to come back with at least three. So it's a four-point sequence anyway. So teams have to strategically try to get seven and leave no time so that the Chiefs can get zero instead of three. Like, that needs to be part of your thought process. And Higgins 
decide to reach for the end zone, so selfishly try to score a touchdown with a minute 40 left in the first half. Right. So to be clear, you, when you're Bill Belichick reviewing this on the Monday, except it's the playoffs, you're all going home, you're probably not doing that. When you're tape reviewing this play, you are not haranguing Rashad Higgins for being selfish for risking the turnover by extending the ball. You are calling him an idiot for trying to score in the first place because you left too much time on the clock. Yes, and both both <laughs> things are true. Now there are Patriots players, current and former players, all over the Twitter and all saying Bill wouldn't allow that. Bill tells you never to reach for the goal line unless it's fourth down. So to your point about the rule, I'm going to back you up about the rule, right? It's not like people don't know the you know what the rule is. Yeah. So you adjust how you play to the rule. So if you know that it's bad to fumble out of the end zone, don't risk it. So you coach, don't reach for the goal line like that unless it's fourth down. So that's that's a good answer too. It's it's like people complaining about the overtime rule, like okay the t the the team that you know scores if you give up a touchdown you lose. Well you don't just don't give up a touchdown. Play defense. You know defense is part of the game too. So I'll defend you on the rule because you can coach it. Um, but I also think and Romo made this point. Romo was so excited yesterday. Mm. I thought he did. I think he just does. He does a great job of setting the scene from a time management standpoint. And you just see how smart quarterbacks are. And they're like, I have enough time to do this. And then we'll do this. And you got to get out, out of bounds here. And this minute, you know, use your timeout at this point. He's really good at setting that. But he even said the Browns were afraid to call timeout. Minute left in the, in the first half. Mahomes has third and seven or whatever it was. And they're afraid to call timeout. Because you don't want, you know, normally you want to get the ball back, but you don't think you're going to stop the Chiefs anyway, and you don't want to give them any help. Um, and that ended up being true. I, I also thought one of the big plays on that drive, by the way, Miles Garrett gets off, is offsides, and Mahomes spends about ten seconds. It was like a ten second play um, to just, you know, further get into field goal range, and it screwed the Chiefs out of a touchdown opportunity. Mm. I thought they didn't play that actually very well at the end of the half. Um, Holmes should have thrown into the end zone or something once he knew he had a free play because it actually cost right. them time and they only kicked a field goal. Um, let's get to the Mahomes injury. He got hurt. He's now gotten hurt on a QB sneak and on a speed option, both third and one, fourth and one, short yardage, whatever. Um, I've been of the minds that like this Kansas City offense, which is just so brutal to defend, so difficult to defend, that all and sometimes they break out the speed option, which is like, I'm not. How am I going to defend Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and Mahomes' ridiculousness and a speed option? Like, why do I have to even defend that? But now I'm of the minds that that thing gets deleted from the playbook forever. Mahomes took a massive hit, and it was it's just way too risky. Hmm. Okay. I mean, <laughs> wow, this is just take day in this uh, for this game. You, you I, what? Football's it's a violent game. You can get hit at any time. Deal with it. Like. Okay, he's gotten hurt on two rushing yeah, plays. That's can... unfortunate. On the other hand, he's had a bunch of rushing plays where nobody's ever touched him, and he scored touchdowns, moved the ball, key third-down conversions. This is part of the risk of playing football. I wouldn't lose the QB sneak out of the playbook. I think the QB sneak play was just a freak. So freak was this. play. This is not a freak play. When you He got, like, horse-collared from the side and somehow wound it, like— when you make your you quarterback a hit, runner in space, but did you look at like the hit doesn't look like it should have done him any damage. Like it was it doesn't matter. Bizarre. He's still out there exposed in space. You don't He's, expose the billion dollar quarterback. He's to exposed space. in space all the time. This one just happened to hurt him. No, just, what do you mean? No, they don't. Like half it. of his game is running out to the side, making these guys miss, and then picking up seven yards on the ground. Like 
Like it's nothing. This is just a weird one where some guy happened to catch him, happened to take him down in a weird he way was, to concuss him. He was also hurt. He had a toe injury. He okay. had an injury. Well, that's it's third and one. This is all just run sprint right option like they did with Chad Henney. That's entirely different. That's don't run this play right now because your quarterback is hobbled, not don't expose him to the hit ever. I'd bring back I would I would just exchange playbook pages. Bring back the QB sneak. He's not gonna get hurt again on the QB sneak. <laughs> Rip out the speed option. Rip it right out of the electronic playbook. I I, I don't think barring weird circumstances i'm never a fan of don't run this for fear of getting my player injured like if that is ever in your thought process there's probably an issue that's bigger than what you're calling in terms of the plays yeah this got hurt got him hurt that's now two instances where he's been hurt on rushing plays which for a passing player is not ideal on the other hand it's a data point of two which is probably not something you should be basing your entire playbook on going forward um, anyway, the Chiefs played – I used the word patient. I also like the fact that people were like, yeah, the Chiefs are really patient. They pick up a first down every set of downs. I thought this game exemplified just how scared defenses can be of Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, giving everything underneath, you know, you know, again, inviting the run and all that stuff, and the Chiefs did a really good job. It, they, they can dink and dunk you down the field if they want. Right. And, it, and again, I think you credit Mahomes. He doesn't have to be a guy that, you know, chucks it deep 10 times a game. He'll take what's under that, you know, underneath and it, you know, hit those quick outs all day. And it's like seven or eight yards. I mean, it's such an efficient way to run the offense, but it's because teams are afraid of the big ball. Deep it ball. also just showed how, like, just how freaky good Kelsey and Hill are. Like the play where Kelsey absolutely shakes Denzel Ward and yeah, that makes him happen. fall over. That shouldn't happen. Like Denzel Ward is their best cover guy. He's a cornerback yeah. and a tight end just send him to the sent him to the moon and back with a fake move. Like he's probably the only tight end in the NFL that can make that happen. That's ridiculous. That shouldn't be possible. The end play, which we'll get to now or in a second, like the last play of the game, right? Tyree Kill essentially running a play from the Cole Beasley route tree shakes a guy in a split second for like five yards right if that's all he did if if he just ran the cole beasley route tree the short underneath quick uh in and out stuff nobody would ever be within five yards of the guy everyone's terrified of his deep speed and the threat he can have running unmolested over the top from the slot where you can't run with him that you forget about the fact that one jab step and then back to the outside and by the time you've even got your feet underneath you reacting to his initial release He's five yards running into his route, and you're screwed. Like, he is completely uncoverable in all of these situations. That was, that's what makes Tyreek Hill so dangerous. It's like, there's a thing. Like, somebody gave, somebody, Peter King, gave Cole Beasley an all-pro vote for what he does in the slot. If you asked Tyreek Hill to do that every game, he would make Cole Beasley look like you out there running routes. Like, <laughs> it would be ridiculous. He would, yeah, he would have 200. He would never be. There would never be a guy within five yards of him in terms of, like, one-on-one coverage. It's ridiculous. And yet, because it's just, like, a tiny fringe thing of what he does, it's not even a factor. Honestly, I think that's one of the best things Andy Reid did because they started Tyreek's career as a gimmicky type of player. He was running jet sweeps and, you know, working out of the slot. And then he was like, I'm going to use him as a deep threat as well. And I think, again, Romo and CBS did a great job of showing the – the crossing route, that crossing route that he runs and then running a stop off it. That reminds me, remember the Randy Moss play 
where they would just tell, you know, big cover two. Everybody played cover two back then. Right. Randy, run right at the cover two safety. And you're either putting your hand up saying, give it to me deep, or you're going to stop. And it's an easy 15, 20-yard gain. Tyreek does that with the, with the deep over from the slot. But it's like you have, to, you, have to spend two, you have to spend multiple resources to stop the deep ball with Tyreek Hill, where if he just wants to run a little in and out underneath, like who do you have to stop him? Um, also, so Chad Henney comes in, and I, I always say this, try to, you know, not to take anything away from Patrick Mahomes, who's awesome. But Mahomes is legitimately throwing to the best tight end in the league mm-hmm. with Kittle and the best, the most dangerous receiver in the league in Tyreek Hill. And Henny, other than the arm punt, which was absurd. Where he it's just, one of the worst plays I've ever seen. Anywhere. He just chucked it into the end zone. Henny had the same open receivers, like Kelsey creating massive separation over the middle, the jump ball to Tyreek Hill, and that's what makes Tyreek Hill – very dangerous as a receiver too it's not just run by you it's not just the slot running skills that you're talking about by the way he can go win a jump ball over your defense just can but is actually really good at that he's really like really good ball skills so the chiefs just have a way to you know they can win so many different ways that being said like okay hideous arm punt i haven't actually looked what is this great it's not gonna be good right because of that that alone. one's gonna crush it because he only had eight right. dropbacks. but that what was it third and 15 where he picks it up on the ground 50. Uh, oh yeah yeah he gets the 14 yards right Right. set up the final play great play dives gets just enough almost just enough sets up the fourth and one Uh, it was weird it it looked for all the world like oh that's he got the first down and the dude who spotted it was coming in from like five yards behind the play like trailing it had a hideous angle on figuring out where that ball was spotted it exactly right great spot it's incredible Given where he was coming from and what he was looking at, there's almost no way. Like he, it basically had to have been blind luck, but he got it absolutely perfectly. So that play, which takes them from like a mile away to six inches to play with, and then Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy, whoever was making the call, dials up the pass on fourth and one. You got six inches to get to win the game, to end it, right? Everyone's talking about, oh, the Browns have got time on the clock if you punt like – You've got six inches with the best offense in the NFL. Okay, shorn of your all-world quarterback. Still, you have six inches to win the game, to end it right now, go and win the game, because you're not going to get a better shot than this. And they did. They dialed it up. They asked Tyreek Hill to run one of those Cole Beasley routes, and he's like five yards wide the hell open. All you got to do is hit him. Okay, so I just – I'm results-driven here. Of course. Incredible play. I call it the lullaby. This is the lullaby. All right. It's fourth and inches. The fact that it was fourth and inches is what really made it work, right? Because it's it's an obvious QB sneak mm-hmm. opportunity, particularly with Chad Henney. With Chad, he, Chad Henney can run the QB sneak. He won't get hurt. And more to the point, you probably don't want him running much else. Like. Yes. So Chad Henney can run the QB sneak. They come out in the in, in the gun, right? And I don't know. Teams should do this more often on fourth down in general. I think is come out on fourth down. Do the whole deal like, oh, we're going to draw you off sides. We're going to run multiple motions and shifts and all that stuff and then run a play. Mm-hmm. It lulls the defense to sleep. I'm calling it the lullaby. And I think Chad Henney helped sell it. He just sat there in the gun just like hanging out. The receivers as well. Like they're like, Everybody. Romo's busy. Yeah. They're going, they're not running a play. Look at the receivers. Yeah. They're, they're just looking bored. Like They lulled everybody. The whole thing was like that. And then they ran sprint right option off of that. It's the same thing they did to seal the deal a few weeks back with Mahomes. 
And, you know, Andy Reid has shown that that fourth down aggressiveness makes a ton of sense, especially when you're only up five, right? When you, if you go and trust your defense, this a is touchdown, the perfect play for that ends the game. It's the perfect example of what everybody talks about with this aggressiveness stuff. Like old school football would be like, you trust your defense, you punt the ball away, yeah. you, you back on your chances to stop them over the length of the field, right? Not in today's NFL. You don't let suicide offenses score in the two-minute drill all the freaking time you do not want to give that like why would you give your why would you give the opposition offense the chance to win that game as opposed to yours every offense in the nfl is better than their corresponding defense pretty much right so why would you take you have one play all you need to do is pick up six inches one play instead of that why would you why would you give the opposition offense the chance to make it the plays it's just nuts to me this is exactly what you do you take the risk, right? Yes, there's a chance we get it, we screw it up. On the other hand, if you can't pick up six inches with the best offense in the NFL to win a game, like what are you even doing here? There was another big play. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I, I like when you're one play away, put it, keep it in your hands. Always. Even if it is Chad Henning. Yeah. You know? Um, the other thing that I think really hurt the Browns, I don't know how much it ends up affecting the outcome. There's the incomplete pass to the Chiefs, uh, comeback route like clearly hit the ground refs missed that one mm -hmm. great spot on the henny run refs nailed it they miss the incompletion on a comeback the chiefs run a play doesn't count then the tyreek jump ball clearly a catch yeah and it felt like a bit more of you know kevin stefanski being a little bit more of an emotional like man i wasn't quick enough on the trigger last time i'm just gonna throw the flag out there it was a, as clear as day a catch and it cost the browns a timeout in the second half little stuff like that a miss, you know, the refs were at fault on the first one, but you know, a missed challenge here and there. Those are the types of things I think just need to be perfect against the Chiefs. Between that and, of course, the big one being the fumble out of the end zone, you know, that hurt the Browns. But man, they did everything they could to stay in it. Nick Chubb ran the ball well. Would have liked to see him catch the ball a little bit better. Two drops on screens yeah, that you know bad. that just looked really clunky. Rashard Higgins made a uh, forget the fumble for a minute. Made a ton of huge catches. He was the one guy that could get open. It's so funny against man coverage. Nobody is able to articulate why he's good, but he is. He's a good route runner. And not just good, but like him and Baker runner. Mayfield have a connection as well. Again, for no reason. Like Baker Mayfield was the number one pick. Rashad Higgins was like a low draft pick. There's no reason those two should have been on the same page from day one. Like it's not like you know sometimes you see a quarterback that was buried on the depth chart and he gets elevated and the guy who was like his corresponding receiver with the third team, yeah. suddenly gets a better role because those two have a connection. Chemistry. Right. Like Higgins and Mayfield should never have been in the same, on the same path line. They should never have been parallel uh, receiver quarterback trains. And yet that's the guy he's had the connection with since the first time they got there. It's, it's bizarre. Uh, Baker played a pretty good game overall. The, the bad interception to Tyron Matthew. Uh, there are – there are Jarvis Landry has quite the um, – mixed i don't know some people love him some people polarizing yeah polarizing polarizing receiver if you are an anti-jarvis landry guy like this is your game there's games where he just looks horrendous overall and doesn't produce he had 10 targets for 20 yards mm. 10 targets seven catches <laughs> for 20 yards um yes one of them was a touchdown but he also like, he one was, of them was like a tap pass that just got buried behind the line as well that's not really on him I, i'm just saying because well because fantasy players like the volume you know of all the catches and stuff like that but it doesn't always produce with them 
Um, but he was also the guy like on the interception, just kind of like sitting in the zone, probably should have worked back to the quarterback a little bit. I mean, there was just things that showed up that weren't great, but you have 10 targets going Landry's way. Only one goes Donovan people's Jones way. And it was, it was a dime by Baker, mm. beautiful deep ball, maybe stretch the field with him a little bit more. But I think, again, it comes back to the chiefs do a really good job of discouraging passes beyond the line of scrimmage. They do a great job of, uh, cl- uh crowding that area. So look, I think. Because Man, Browns fought tough and kept close. They did. And so it's not going to – like he lost the game. There was a bad interception in there. There are reasons to come out of this game and say – and be down on Baker Mayfield. On the other hand, in this season that has been so weird for him and the Browns offense where you have to throw out so much of it because of circumstance, because of like context, I, th- I think this was another encouraging game for Baker Mayfield's future. Right, this was a different challenge. This was a defense that was going to cause him some problems. The game flow put him in a hole kind of early um, and changed some things. And broadly speaking, Baker Mayfield played pretty well. As you say, there was the yeah, there was the ugly did. interception that it was the same story against Baltimore the second time. Right, pick was bad. Pretty much everything else was good. Um, and to be honest, like if that's what you get from Baker Mayfield going forward, that's a pretty good quarterback. Like if he makes. A bad mistake every now and again. That's generally speaking, quarterbacks. Most most guys do that, right? Right. Tom Brady every now and again throws a ridiculous interception. Like, what the hell are you doing? If that is Baker Mayfield going forward, he's back to being a pretty damn good quarterback. And arguably, the I mean, Josh Allen uh, yesterday, no, yesterday Saturday aside, is playing at like an All Pro level right now. So Allen's better as of now, but. Like, Baker Mayfield becomes the second-best quarterback of that group if he plays like this going forward. Go back and check out the PFF Daily. We debated who we would take, Lamar, Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, who the top guy from the 2018 draft class would be. Rudolph. Yeah, could be any of those guys. Go check out the Daily. Download and subscribe to our other podcast, of course. Um, So the Chiefs move on. We'll be keeping an eye on Patrick Mahomes' concussion protocol. Sometimes concussion protocol does last more than seven days. Can, yeah. So Jay Glazer uh, says it's more like being choked out, though. I mean, okay. Yeah, I don't know what that. Well, Jay Glazer chokes people out a lot. He does his jujitsu stuff, so sure. maybe he's just. He was also the first to break that uh, officially that Drew Brees is going to retire. <laughs> he was. Somebody, by the way, took a screen grab of him reporting this, and they filmed it. So you know when you like video your TV. Yeah. They'd done it from like above. This is presumably what your angle looks like a lot. Yeah, yeah. They did it from above, and so it messed with the perspective. So you had, like, Jay Glazer's giant melon head and then these tiny little hands because it was <laughs> just looked really funny. Like Riley Reef. Yeah, yeah. Short so arms. Go, go look for that video because it's just kind of hilarious to look at. Oh, he just got choked out. All right, the last game of the day, the uh, Bucks 30, Saints 20. The old man ball. The old man ball. Um it was an interesting game, man. I think it was it was intense, man. This is you know you you play a team a third time. The Bucks haven't beaten the Saints in a couple of years now. It was chippy on the field. The Saints at you know they've got you know Gardner Johnson who loves to talk, but all their corners are talking. They didn't were, get anybody ejected. What the hell was it that? Nobody ejected. No, didn't get anybody ejected. You have Lattimore versus Mike Evans, and Lattimore was on press in press coverage against Evans the whole game. Evans only got one three-yard touchdown. That's if, it. If Lattimore only ever played Mike Evans, he right? would be like the best cornerback in NFL history. Incredible. Um, 
but I think, you know, the story, of course, has to be Breeze, just, you know, the poor arm that we've talked about all year, just no margin of error. I thought early on, though, he's, you know, he's throwing the ball early and he's getting it there and he had a, a man coverage third and long that he got, but just, man, he got old. He got old. I, yeah, I, I don't want to do a victory lap on this because it's kind of sad, right? Drew Breeze's career, all-time great ends with one Super Bowl and the chase for a second. It's always nice when the career ends John Elway or Peyton Manning style where they finally got what the hell they were shooting for for decades, right? And Breeze isn't going to get that. He's going to have to, like, slink quietly off into retirement as older man Brady heads his way to yet another championship game. And just, like, when they're doing the, you know, meeting at, at halfway, meeting at midfield after the game, and then they're, on the field after the game and having a chat you're thinking like all right that's nice it's a great gesture and they're obviously buddies but that must be sickening for breeze <laughs> like, i gotta I, i'm done i i'm gonna head to the broadcast booth now and that son of a bitch is just... anyway <laughs> so i i don't want to take a victory lap over this but this was kind of what was coming all season long with breeze and it's the sort of inevitable conclusion of of what he was right now which is with that arm you just have no margin for error and if anything goes wrong in the play and you know things go wrong on most plays most of the time if anything goes wrong in the play you are putting the ball in harm's way and that happened multiple times in this game and every time it happened the bucks capitalized and scored and that's like that's the difference and and the bucks did a really good job of changing their defensive approach because that sunday night game breeze we talked about on the pregame preview show he hit 12 different receivers, and it felt like, you know, the Bucks played a ton of zone, and even when they played man, Breeze had open receivers, and it was just, you know, s- spreading the ball around and destroying the Bucks defense. They came out, played tight man coverage, made every throw difficult. Both defenses made every throw difficult. So even, like, when Brady got the ball behind the defense to Godwin or snuck it up the seam to Godwin's hands, everything was contested and tight on both sides of the ball. So the passing attacks, I think, were – you know, they were inefficient because the defenses were great. But this game absolutely came down to a couple of huge plays. But Jared Cook fumble as well. He fumbles uh, in the second half. And then Breeze throws three total interceptions, had three turnover-worthy plays, um, had another dropped interception in there that, you know, he just – when he had to throw the ball down the field, it was not getting there, accuracy or velocity. And how many short pass breakups did the Bucks have? Just like yeah. little five-yard passes that just – didn't have enough zip on them that that breeze couldn't complete so that was a huge factor bucks defense played great but also breeze you know they they played two breezes weaknesses really well you know troy aikman was pointing out some of these plays and sort of criticizing the receivers for route running and you know emmanuel sanders not uh leaking up field rather than heading flat on, on a slant and all these kinds of things and it's like okay sure you can you can point to those things on the but that's exactly what we're talking about right when you're playing with the kind of arm that Breeze has right now, there is zero margin for error. And if your receiver does do that and leak half a yard upfield, that's the margin for error done. Right. Or if Jared Cook does something slightly different to what you wanted him, or Alvin Kamara on the, the seam, it, it's done. The play can't work anymore because you need it to be absolutely perfect because you're throwing to a spot. Like Breeze is just out there literally trying to put the ball onto targets like tiny targets and hoping that the moving geometry of everything 
coincides perfectly with the right timing and it's a catch if it isn't if anything happens to that moving chess game the whole thing falls apart and it's a hideous interception and that unfortunately it was going to happen at some point right whether it was the bucks defense whether it's the chiefs defense in the super bowl somebody's defense was going to come along and put him in that position where um like the whatever the defense is able to do overcomes the margin for error that you had and we thought it might be Chicago last week like they did it the first time they played it was just always going to happen do you think so Taysom Hill was hurt inactive do you think not having him actually hurt the flow of the offense we've generally been on the other end saying man don't take your franchise quarterback off the field but they have been more efficient with the Taysom Hill package like as silly as it is it has like a higher EPA per play than when he isn't on the field so I think there's that I think it also like when you're when you're playing defense against Drew Brees and you know what you're going to get and you go in with this game plan like okay we're going to play tight press man coverage we're we're just going to make him throw the ball down the field and challenge everything you can the lullaby you can get lulled to sleep a little bit too what they bring Taysom in you got to kind of change your mentality they bring Brees back in you might have to change your mentality I, I feel like in this game it actually hurt a little bit with the flow now Sean Payton man dials up the same play that the Bears ran the previous week with Trubisky, Trubisky hits the bomb to Javon Wims that gets dropped. They use the same play with Jameis Winston, 56-yard touchdown. I mean, that's that's a freak play. That's a great call. Terrible defense by the Bucs. Great call by the Saints. But this game's even worse yeah. if that play doesn't happen, right? I mean, the Saints scored 20 points, including this one 56-yarder. The Saints had a couple big boy drives on there where they mixed run and pass and all that stuff. But other than that, they struggled to move the ball. And that's the thing, because that touchdown was in there, I think probably not. Like, does the, does having a Taysom Hill in there for the entirety of the game add up yeah, to, negate what, that right, to what you play. get from that one trick play from Jameis Winston? Probably not. Maybe they still would have run it. Maybe. But either way, like, I don't think missing Taysom Hill is, is the reason for this issue. Um, I think that like Breeze just reached the end of but the, the margin for error that he had. The other part, too, that, that was important, right? I thought, and I, me- I mentioned this on the pre- Uh, the preview as well I thought early in the game you would have an idea of the way this game was going to go and it looked like same old Bucks Saints Mm. where the 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 Bucks offense was just had no answers for the Saints defense and the Saints moved down the field twice and they came away with field goals right it was six nothing and that's where Taysom Hill comes in as well so even though maybe you'd negate a 56 yard freebie from Jameis Winston what if they punch one of those in or both of them in because Taysom Hill makes your red zone package a little bit better. Uh, so I don't know. I think that did hurt the flow just a little bit because the Saints just in the middle of the game, they didn't have answers. They did not have answers for the Bucks defense once they really cracked down. Yeah, and, and it was in- encouraging for this is a good thing for Tampa Bay. Again, their season has been a two-part thing, right? Get to the playoffs, however the hell you do it, just get there. And then once you get there, prove that you've learned lessons from the bad things that happened over your regular season, right? When teams threw things at you that caused issues, learn from those mistakes so that when it happens again in the playoffs, you have answers this time and you're not sitting at home the next week. They showed again that they have developed some answers for things that are thrown at them. And their defense did the kind of things that we've been saying for a while. Like, why is this defense not playing more aggressive up front in terms of man coverage? Why are they not using those players the way they should be used they did that in this game like michael thomas didn't have a catch it's nuts yeah which by the way is like the second year in a row where somebody's come into the postseason 
completely eliminated Michael Thomas. He he had the back shoulder. That was actually, I think, one of the better throws Breeze put, um, threw, actually putting the ball away from coverage on the back shoulder, and Thomas just couldn't stay in bounds. He could only get the one hand to it. He's posting on Instagram that he was that it's a catch, and it's like really close because his shin was kind of down, but his knee hits out of bounds, and it was really close. Mm. So Mike was fighting for for that, like the record to be credited. Well, I mean, he's just trying to say I, I wasn't eliminated. I got a catch, almost a spectacular catch by uh, by Michael Thomas. Uh, so, from a P- Bucks perspective, oh, man, they scored thirty points in large part because of field position off of turnovers just ridiculous the first interception by breeze was sean murphy bunting and mike thomas out physical right michael thomas um and then you know just a a three-yard touchdown whatever brady to evans so the the bucks didn't move the ball very efficiently they also ran the ball like crazy on early downs first down run after run after run i thought it seemed like in the second half of the season when their offense was better, they did a much better job on early down play action and various things like that. But this was inefficient offense from the Bucks, and I think they got to be a lot more aggressive next week against the Packers, even if it is cold and snowy. Well, it was, it was playoff Lenny. How could you not feed him? Um, I, Fournette ends up with 63 yards on 17 carries, long of eight. <laughs> he feels quicker and a little bit, you know, and it feels like his vision's better. He also caught a touchdown. I mean, that's the other thing, too. They came through in the red zone with a couple of those touchdowns. Poor old Ronald Jones rattles off, like, an amazing run. Despite, like, the dude is battling some kind of injury, rattles off an incredible run that, like, aggravates it and then yeah. comes back for holding. Like, come on. Yeah. Um, a lot more holding calls this weekend after the NFL. Weird. It's like the NFL basically flags. eliminated it yeah. all season long. You know what we're going to bring back for the postseason? Holding calls. Because everyone loved that when You've it was asked around. for it. Yeah. You're listening. Back by popular demand, here's the holding you've been missing all regular season. Um, ironically, so I think the Bucks' offense generally did a better job of uh, with the scheme, with the things that New Orleans can throw at them. Um, Brady was under pressure a hell of a lot less now that he has Ali Marpet back in the starting lineup, which was obviously going to happen. But Brady didn't actually play that well this game. Like He's been playing as well as any quarterback in the NFL over the last you know number of weeks wasn't great in this game and like if they can win a game like this now granted you know you're not gonna get three turnovers every week but if you can win a game like this with Brady playing like that you have a real shot at winning a Super Bowl yeah it wasn't great so the inefficient offense we're talking about the Bucs run after run after run on first down when that's the best time to pass and then they had a third and three early on Brady misses Gronk down the field and then a third and one it looked like he's just ch- – Antonio Brown wasn't even open. He's yeah. just chucking it deep, almost got inter- – like, I don't care about the interception part of it because it was like an arm punt at that point, but he just – an overthrow deep into essentially double coverage on third and one, just inefficient offense. And for the second straight week, Cameron Brait is the most efficient receiver for the Bucks. I think that's the part that also makes them dangerous. You know, Chris Godwin had a couple almosts, right, mm-hmm. some near catches that would have been great. Mike Evans was essentially eliminated – but then you have Tyler Johnson step up with a great catch on a back shoulder. You have Scotty Miller step up with a 29-yarder that was also huge getting the Bucs um, to flip the field. So that is what makes the Bucs dangerous. You know, Antonio Brown got hurt, and that's why Tyler Johnson was in the game. They are so deep at wide receiver and tight end that even when the top guys don't show up, they're still able to make plays. Yeah, I mean, the talent in this receiving core is pretty absurd. Like, And that's, that's a huge part as well that – 
they don't necessarily need to be perfect on offense with the scheme and with Brady. They have they have a lot of margin for error, right? The reverse of the Saints, who had none. Like for a number of weeks down the back end of the season, Tampa Bay was winning games not because they'd figured anything out or because their scheme was dramatically better or more efficient, just because their athletes and their receiving talent was beating the guys trying to cover them. And that's always the potential for that is always there. Like they can have a, a, an iffy game in terms of scheme and in terms of play calling. Um, and in terms of Brady's efficiency, but like ultimately at some point you've got to cover Gronk and Godwin and Evans and, um, you know, Tyler Johnson. Like there's so many people you've got to try and stop. Lenny. Fournette, man. He got to the end zone in the pass game too. Uh, say what you want about QB wins and all that stuff, but man, Brady's been in the conference championship in 14 of his 19 years as starter. Yeah. That's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> He's been there more than the next two guys combined. The next two guys are Elway and Joe Montana. The one I like seven and six. That was his 14th game winning drive in the playoffs, which if that was all the wins that he had would tie him for third with Elway, with Peyton Manning, and I think Terry Bradshaw and just overall playoff wins. He now has 32 playoff wins, double Joe Montana, who's Mm. number two. And it's fun. Like this season is so funny for that because before it was all well it's not just brady it's brady and the patriots and belichick and all these things together like i mean now it's brady now brady is doing all this again exactly like it looked before only there's no belichick and there's no juggernaut there's the bucks and bruce arians trying to run the ball with lenny every first and ten yeah and i want to see what happens now if the if the bucks lose next week brady's idol is joe montana and i always thought that there might be like I didn't, I didn't think the Bucs would be a Super Bowl team. I felt like Brady had a one Joe Montana Chiefs run, maybe. And the, the Chiefs went to the AFC Championship and Montana lost to the Bills. And is that how it's going to end? Is it going to be just like his idol? Or are we going to see, as you said on the last show, this ridiculous, legendary Brady's back in the Super Bowl without Belichick? I mean, there's so much on the line next week. It's incredible. I mean the world and medical advancements and you know nutrition and just generally taking care of yourself has progressed a lot since the 1990s but Brady is now what is it six years older than Joe Montana was at that point and looks dramatically better yeah like Montana at 37 was like an old broken down busted up version of himself that could barely function anymore right and it was like he had one last reserve of magic in the depths and it just couldn't go far enough right brady now i I mean he looks the same he looks as good as he's ever looked i did see one article that essentially like equated breeze and brady oh these two old guys they struggled through the game because they're old and father time caught up and i think that is absurd Mm -hmm. brady just didn't have a great game yeah Bree in in just like Josh Allen didn't you, have a great game. Like nobody's saying back. Josh Allen's too old because right. he had a rough game against the Ravens Saturday. You night. only need to go back like a week for Brady to look yeah. like Brady again. So, Drew Brees, you got to go back like two and a half years. Right, and, and so you're talking about yes, medical advances since the '90s. The most recent things we've seen though is like Peyton Manning at 39 could barely even throw the ball, and Drew Brees now at 41, his 41 year old season could barely throw the ball the Brady closest, at 41 was you know still looking pretty and now yeah. he's 43 and looking as good as ever the closest to this we've seen is Brett Favre at 40 for the Vikings yeah in 09 where they went to the championship game should have gone to the Super Bowl um and Favre could Favre still looked like vintage Favre right the only thing that was different is that when 17 New Orleans Saints people jumped on top of him 
bits of the mat started breaking in a way that they didn't before, right? That was why Brett Favre got busted up and had to retire. Like he could, st- he was physically still able to do exactly what he always did, which is run around, make plays, fire the ball wherever he wanted. Brady's like that, except he doesn't take the hits. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, yeah, he knows how to avoid hits for the most part, but I think physically, you can't look at Brady and be like, yeah, physically he's declining. No. Like, the Saints defense is really good, and I mean, they have really good answers for the Bucs scheme as they did in this game, but Brady's still chucking it around okay. I right? sent you a little clip of uh, Hart was on a pregame show, and it was Brady taking off and running against Mich- or as for Michigan against Purdue maybe. Maybe it was against the Drew Brees thing. But he was like, um, the commentary was like, Brady's deceptively fast. He's even slower than you think he is. And somebody replied to this and was like, I would bet a lot of money that Brady right now is faster than he was playing for Michigan. I think that's probably true. I think Brady right now is a better athlete than he was in 1998, which is to say he's still terrible. But the point is he hasn't physically declined in any way, shape, or form. His arm, even if you just look at his arm now versus 2001, like significantly better. Like 02 and 03, he he turned the corner pretty quickly as far as like arm strength and velocity and everything. But I think he's got it. He's fine now. So, as I mentioned earlier, four of the top five graded quarterbacks are left in the playoffs. I want to discuss Deshaun Watson, the other quarterback that is in the top five. What? I've just uh, I've upset Austin's headspace, which is a personal preference thing, but i got to slouch back down. Either that or he's going to come into the studio and fix it. Oh, is that for you? Yeah. Or is it me? could be talking about me. No, I'm pretty sure it's me. Whose fault up. is it, Austin? Every time I sit up, it ruins a shot. Oh, it is, it is you. Yeah. It's now you. I've slouched back down, so he doesn't need to change it. This is very again, unprofessional. I know. Bingo. Cut it. Edit it out. Somebody Bingo. edit this. Yeah. We're so professional, we mm-hmm. can't have. Anywho, who do you want to talk about? Deshaun Watson. Okay. Right. What are we doing? Sounds like he wants out of Houston. Yeah. Do we save this as a daily topic? Well, we've already kind of done it, right? You want to do it again? I want to talk Slightly about differently. The, okay, let's let's give the PFF NFL podcast listeners what they want here. Deshaun okay. Watson, who could actually trade for him? It well, sounds like he wants completely out of Houston. <laughs> we had this conversation a little bit last night. Let's talk for a second about how you even get to this point. Like, okay, you've decided you've decided to fire everybody in the building, right? Things went south. It's been ugly. Bill O'Brien, who basically was everybody in the building at that point, gets fired. Um, now you've got to put together a new staff. You need a new head coach. You need a new GM. You're not going to make the same mistake of having him be the one guy. And your quarterback, Deshaun Watson, wants to have some input, right? He's tied down long-term. He's got a big long-term contract. He is the franchise. He wants some input into this. Uh, And you apparently agree to that as the owner. You say, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then you go and hire somebody else without talking to him, and he's upset, really upset, apparently. (laughs) That, how do you let that happen? Like, that's an absolute gimme of a hurdle to clear in terms of just keeping the guy happy, and I'm, you screw it up. I'm back and forth on this because, again, I don't, I don't like to comment too much on stuff that we don't when know you're, right. when you're not in the room, right? And stuff that gets reported in the media and stuff like that sometimes has – they have slants to it, and, you know, you could tell whatever story you want. What I guess I want to know is – how much input did they say Watson would have? Was it an innocence like, yeah, man, you'll be a part of the conversation, and they kind of involved him a little bit, and then they went and got a guy that they didn't want, and or, or they did kind of go behind his back, and Easterby got his guy and Nick Casario. But as far as like Nick Casario being the GM, I don't know if Watson should be upset about that in particular because he could do a good job. We don't know. The other part that is interesting is how much – here's the question – how much 
should the quarterback be involved in picking his bosses, whether it's the guy picking players for him or his head coach. I don't think he should have a lot of input in that, just a, a quarterback in general. I agree in theory. I, the one thing I would quibble with that is this, the term boss, right? Because when you're a franchise quarterback with a giant extension, you know, long-term contract, the head coach and the GM, they're not really your boss. That's At fair. that point, you're all partners in the long-term vision of what this team is. You're all partners in trying to win a Super Bowl, right? You've, when they gave you the giant extension in your second deal and you're now the face of the franchise. Well, you're worth more than your Well, A, you're boss. worth more yeah. than them. But B, you've also progressed past the point of like you're an expendable piece of this thing where you're just – like you're an underling. You're not. Uh, you're no longer an underling. You've been elevated to the point of being like part of this strategy, right? So I don't think they're necessarily their boss. Now, I don't think that that automatically gives you like a giant say in who the hell they should be. It's still a checks and balance thing, right? You want to hire a guy that has the uh, capacity to coach Deshaun Watson, not to be like, well, Deshaun Watson essentially hired me, so I got to do what he wants because that's how you get to reported Carson Wentz situation I was right? about to say so let's let's contrast that to the reports coming out of Philadelphia yeah. this big article Philly Inquirer this weekend about Carson Wentz and about how he hasn't been coachable because he's essentially too friendly with the general manager with with Doug Peterson at head coach that there's not that Doug, Carson Wentz doesn't like to be coached yeah in, in a difficult manner and compare that to say a Brady like his whole career we talked about how Belichick would trash him in the film room and Bruce Arians in the public has trashed Tom Brady and who knows what Breeze and Peyton have had but Joe Montana had to deal with Bill Walsh probably coaching him hard for a few years right so like the greatest quarterbacks have those checks and balances so how much do you actually want input on the head coach agreed um which is why I don't think it's great for you to basically be you wouldn't be in a situation where you essentially say Deshaun Watson choose who your head coach wants to be right that guy needs to have more independence than that so but on the other hand, right, at some point, there was a conversation where he said he wanted input and you presumably agreed to that. Um, at which point, you need to, there has to be some kind of just like superficial, ostensible consultation with Deshaun Watson, even if you then ignore him, right? All you have to do is be like, hey, these are the candidates we want to talk to. Do you have any names, Deshaun, that we should add to this list? And then even have him in the room when you interview the guys, right? And then what do you think, Deshaun? Who should we go for? I'd be more likely and then just get his input on the candidates you came up with rather than... Whatever. There's, there's a whole bunch them. of stuff you can do sure. and then ignore, right? right? To hire who you want to hire anyway. And then he goes away feeling like he was involved in part of the process. What it sounds like happened, and I take your point that like there's no guarantee this is the way it went down. For all we know... Deshaun Watson is upset that he didn't get to handpick his candidate, and that's we an unreasonable right. thing, right? But if it happened the way it's being reported, which is they went, yeah, of course you can be involved in this search, and then just went and hired a guy without discussing it any further with Deshaun Watson, that is just an absurdly ridiculous thing to be doing for your franchise quarterback. And strikes me as the kind of thing where you just, it never occurred to you that he could then go, oh, I'm out of here. I'm not dealing with that. Bye-bye. And you're like, uh oh, <laughs> like that's a problem we didn't see coming. That, and, and not to not to do the Brady Belichick thing again, but if if we if we are learning anything in this quarterback, you need a quarterback and a head coach. They have to work together and they're a team. But you don't screw up the quarterback situation, right? The quarterback is is the bigger needle mover, particularly having like got it right already. 
Yes. Right? Like it's hard enough to get it's hard enough to strike gold in finding a Deshaun Watson. Don't like don't screw it up from there. Is Watson the second best asset in the NFL? I think yes. you could debate Josh Allen now the way he's playing. You could debate Lamar Jackson, what we've seen from him. Don't forget he was an MVP last year, but like Watson top five asset in the NFL as far as value to winning football games. What Houston have done is won the lottery and then lost the ticket, right? That's essentially what you've done here. It's hard enough. This is the guy that's trying to unlock his Bitcoin to yeah, a yeah. million dollars. It's, it's hard enough to win the lottery in the first place, right? Your chances of doing that are astronomically small. At least keep hold of the ticket so that you can claim the money at the end of it. Houston struck gold with Deshaun Watson and apparently have managed to alienate him to the point where he wants out. So where does Deshaun Watson go? Miami. For sure? You think that's it, huh? I think there's only two teams that even have the ammunition to make it happen. Miami and the Jets. Think about the, the dominoes that fell for this to happen. Well, if because this happens, it's essentially a trade of Laramie Tunsil for Deshaun Watson. Right. Which is hilarious. Right. <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying. I wonder if the Texans would avoid that just... For the optics. For the optics. Yeah. And the perception of, man, you made this terrible trade for Tunzel, who's been great. Great left tackle and all that stuff, but you just gave up too much. It would be painful, but that's just like the dictionary definition of sunk cost fallacy. Like, Would they take Tua with them too? Yeah, you'd have to, right? But it's like you've already done – like the damage has been done, right? On the face of it, if the trade you would get back from Miami would be like three first-round picks, Tua – and maybe some seconds in there as well, which are high seconds. That's – it's worth like, – if the quarterback wants the hell out, which is – like trading Deshaun Watson is a bad idea, right? You shouldn't do it. He's great. He's arguably the second-best asset in the NFL after Patrick Mahomes. Under no circumstances should you allow that guy out of the building. On the other hand, if you successfully burn the bridges with him to the point where he is leaving the building, the only thing left to determine is what you're getting back in exchange – that's that's going to be as good as you can do get a bunch of high draft picks and a quarterback that a year ago was a top five talent and you know didn't necessarily show anything great in year one but hasn't like you haven't written him off after year one either the argument against the dolphins would be sure you take Tua. we don't really know what you have in Tua, but then would you as the texans have you'd have the number three overall pick your your pick back yeah and would you take the uh justin fields or zach wilson whoever's with left three there. over Tua, so you, you end up with the same conversation that miami has now right. which so you'd is, have Tua and the number three overall pick and now you're now you're playing your odds and then maybe a year from now you're flipping Tua again yourself yeah and continuing to add more draft i mean capital. that becomes a really interesting conversation for nick azario right it's like now i'm i come in i've got no marriage to any quarterback i have Tua and the number three overall pick. I have no quarterback right now. Yeah, I mean, they probably do, right? You've got, sure, the roster's in bits, and you need a ton of, uh, you need a ton of people in to fix it. But on the other hand, you're at, literally at square one with quarterback, and you don't right. know the two is that guy. So let's double the chances and draft somebody at three. Yeah, so I think that would make for an interesting decision. And I think the Jets, Daniel Jeremiah was uh, – you know, posing that as a possibility, right? So the Jets have two first-rounders. One of them came from Jamal Adams. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's it's fascinating because the Jets were making a lot of good moves these last couple of years, of like positioning themselves to rebuild, right? With cap space, with draft capital, trading Jamal Adams, getting the first-rounder back. 
I think if nothing else, it's not just for the picks, it's for the, the ammunition for when situations like this arise. Nobody a year ago was like, well, Deshaun Watson's going to be on the trading block. Right. But when you stock up on draft capital and you have the number two pick like the Jets have plus another first rounder and future first rounders, it's like, okay, now we can make a move. It's also what the Browns did when before, the Baker May, before they found Baker Mayfield, right? Like the Browns did a similar thing. They stripped the thing for parts. They amassed a ton of cap room and a ton of draft capital. And it gives you flexibility to make things happen very quickly. So when they did find Baker Mayfield, and after his rookie season, now, okay, things went south in year two, but after his rookie season, they were like, oh, wow, we finally found the guy, right? The jersey of the million names can stop. We found Baker Mayfield. This is it. They then threw, like, everything at rebuilding the roster in one offseason, right, to try and essentially surround him with as much talent as humanly possible. And while it didn't work out because of everything that happened in year two, like, the point is you were able to essentially immediately deploy a playoff vehicle around the guy that you found because of all the flexibility that you built up. Right. And so you can do that or you can do what you're talking about, which is suddenly a random Deshaun Watson becomes open on the market and you can – pivot to just getting that guy yeah stocking up on ammunition i think has multiple benefits whether it is picking a ton of players or just being ready in case the texans owner pisses off the franchise quarterback and he's out on the open market i would keep an eye on the jets and the dolphins as you said they seem most equipped i've seen people even internally people have discussed the jaguars i don't think the texans who knows i don't think they would trade him inside the division but would you I tra- don't so, think here's the here's the question Deshaun Watson or Trevor Lawrence I mean I would want Deshaun Watson over Trevor Lawrence but it's not like it's not like it's straight up right it's going to be Desha- it's going to be Trevor Lawrence and a bunch more picks at which point I would take Trevor Lawrence is it really though yeah this is not going to trade Trevor Lawrence for Deshaun Watson straight up I mean if they do the Texans got absolutely I think plus plus other picks too but like that's what I'm saying Trevor Lawrence given what you think he's going to be yeah and you've got his rookie contract, not in Watson's office rookie contract. Could you make the debate that number that Trevor Lawrence for Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence plus like one more pick rather than the four first rounders that you're expecting, Trevor Lawrence plus one more pick is actually a, an even deal with Deshaun Watson? Uh, I wouldn't make that case. No, um, I mean I would be fascinated just for that story. Watson to Jacksonville and so, Trevor Lawrence to Houston, and they're going to play each other for the next X amount of years. Let's equate Trevor Lawrence to Andrew Luck, right? Let's say for argument's sake, they're the equivalent level prospect. There's a lot of people saying Trevor Lawrence is, in fact, better, and you go back even further to Peyton Manning. We don't have data on Peyton Manning, so I'm going to roll with Luck. <laughs> Perfect prospect, essentially, right? Comes out, we expect this guy to be a superstar. It took Andrew Luck until year five for him to be as good as Deshaun Watson is right now. So if that's the way it plays out and you make this trade of let's give away Deshaun Watson, let's bring in Trevor Lawrence, he's going to be as good. It's like, okay, well, he might be, but it's going to take until a second contract for it to happen. So it's not good for you. So if the deal is Trevor Lawrence for Deshaun Watson with maybe one other pick coming back in your direction, you're getting hosed. Okay, it's as good as you're going to get in terms of a potential alternative, but you need other picks as well. Otherwise, the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, look, Watson's awesome. We keep talking him up, but is he a 90-plus quarter? He's had one year at 90-plus. He's been, you know, 68, 80, 82, 92. So is he just a 90-plus? We don't know that he's a 90-plus PFF quarterback. From If he's an 80-plus PFF quarterback, it took Landry Luck until year five to get better than that. Yeah, I mean, Luck, he's, he had a lot of turnover-worthy plays early in his career, but he was trying to yeah. – 
drag a bad roster the same way Watson was, and he did. They, they, they are similar in the fact, like Watson making it to the divisional round last year with the way the Texans were playing defense, that was impressive. Mm -hmm. And then this year, like one of the weirdest seasons of all time where Watson played great and they couldn't win a game. But anyway, interesting discussion. Let us know. Hmm. Who should be trading for Deshaun Watson? All right, here's the deal. We had Dan Quinn coming up, our interview from the other day. It's timely. It's great. I think um, I want to push the Brandon Staley discussion maybe to the daily, and I think it's going to be positioned as I, – I, I think it's fascinating how the AFC West is trying to slow down the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes and bringing in a Brandon Staley from the Rams. The Broncos brought in Vic Fangio a couple years ago, and then the Raiders are doing whatever they're doing. <laughs> but we'll discuss Brandon Staley, his hire to the Chargers, how to stop Patrick Mahomes – and we'll do a little bit more free agency stuff on Thursday. In particular, because the Chargers have Justin Herbert, and the logic was you find an offensive mind to pair with your great young quarterback. Right. Instead, they went, no, you know what the more important thing is? Defense. And then maybe Staley brings in Zach Robinson as his offensive coordinator. Ooh. I wonder if they're buddies. I got to talk to Zach. Text him. Find out. Are you friends with He's Brandon? on the West Coast. Don't test him now. It's like 530. Coaches don't sleep. He's grinded film for next year, okay. Zach. Right. Or he's getting his resume ready for uh, OC interviews for the. He time. already has a resume. He met Sean McVay once. That's true. That's all you need. Hi, Brandon. You know my relationship with Sean. <laughs> Hire me. I was on the same coaching staff as your head coach, Sean. You, McVay. you were there. You saw it. You saw. You saw the great relationship we had. Anyway, uh, a lot of great stuff happening around the NFL. Check out the PFF Daily. We'll have a lot more on this stuff, and then um, Dan Quinn coming up right now, bringing a more consistent defense to the Cowboys as far as schematically so we talked about that with him a little bit cover three the Seattle history so let's get to Dan Quinn right now and then we'll wrap it up all right we are honored to have coach Dan Quinn here the uh the newly assigned minted I minted I don't know what is it I screwed that up he's the defensive coordinator of the Cowboys welcome coach how's it going congrats on the gig yeah on defense we don't use words like minted or <laughs> that stuff so uh, I'm doing good, man. I'm really glad to be on with you guys and uh, and uh, learned a lot from you guys, man. I'm looking forward to, to spending some time and, and talking about some ball today. Yeah, absolutely. This will be great. So I, let me ask just first of all, when you look at Dallas's defense, the way they played this year, like what's your first order of business? What are you looking to do? And you know, what's the what's the first thing you're you're going to do to turn that thing around? Well, I think any team that you want to be a part of, number one, it's uh, you know like make sure you got yourself an identity. You know, whether it's offensively, defensively, on teams, and so. I think each year is different, you know, because people you add to the team. So I think number one, just making sure that identity defensively, um, of the physicality, the speed, the relentless effort, those are things that you want always everybody to see us when we're playing. So that's that's a number one top of the pile for sure. That, you know, create that identity that when everybody sees us play, uh, you know exactly what you're going to get. When you're um, going to interview for something like a defensive coordinator spot for Dallas, are you going in there with like your vision of what you want a defense to look like, or have you specifically prepped for Dallas, you know, for the, for their team based off what they've right. done and personnel wise and what you want to fix there? Yeah, I think number one, um, you don't really have a real sense, you know, when you're going somewhere, what a team has. And that's kind of what, you know, my challenge is now to make sure I get a chance to watch everybody on tape, get a chance to see, you know, what their strengths are and, and see if we can put guys in spots, you know, to know how to feature them. So think of like players first over the scheme part of it. And, right. uh, you know, there'll be certainly, you know, guidelines that you want to fit guys into, but more than anything, what do you have um, and how to feature guys 
you know, will drive a little bit of how you can play. But uh, that's, you know, to me, the, you know, the top of the pile. So scheme wise, um, you know, you, everybody has enough defense and flexibility to last for a while. It's about how to put guys in the best spots and, and also having guys who can play significant roles of doing, you know, certain things really, really well. So that's what I'm looking forward to, you know, getting a chance to visit and see these players and find out like all the unique stuff they have. So you kind of answered a little bit of it, but you know, how do you balance your, do you have a scheme, so to speak? Because especially yes. I think the, the talking points too, because you, you came from Seattle and you know, it's yep. cover threes all across the league and you're you know, the Seattle version of cover three. So are you implementing your scheme or do you have to ease into it, build around your players? Like, how do you balance those two things? There's a little bit of both. And, and certainly you want, like when you're going into a new place, you want to find, you know, what some of the strengths are, you know, in terms of the current thing you want to, you know, dig back. And for me, I had some time, unfortunately, to, uh, <laughs> to, to look uh, at a long, big history of things that, uh, that I also liked, what needed to change, what would be some things that kind of modernized the word or tweak, you know, to, to adjust to, the system can, you know, can have some, you know, different looks to it. And so um, it'll certainly be part of that system. And then there's some other coaches here and some things uh, that I want to implement. So let's find out the best way. So number one, like creating the identity where guys can play fast. I think every really good defense, um, you know, that has a part of it's an aggressive front and they play that way. And that's to me is where it starts. So I'm looking forward to digging in on, on all those topics, but uh, at the end of the day, how much you play of one thing or another, that'll depend a little bit on, on the players. With with that kind of scheme um, from that family tree, the Seattle oh, Legion of Boom, all that kind of stuff, do you have a position that you think is like the keystone that, that everything functions around? Because we've kind of talked that over before, and I think a lot of people have, where was Richard Sherman the most important part of that secondary? Was it Earl Thomas that lets you do all those things? Was it Cam Chancellor? Do you have the spot that you try and lock up first, or how does that work? Yeah, I think that's a good question. It's a, I don't know if it's one spot that drives it. I think uh, how do you get a unit collectively to play relentless and aggressive? And so kind of the best part of um, during the times I had at Seattle was the, was the team. And so the rushers were able to do their thing because of Richard and Cam and Earl and Byron and some of the guys. The secondary was able to get some picks because of Michael and Cliff and Chris Clemens and others, you know, so it kind of went hand in hand in terms of how specifically those two positions can kind of lean on one another, you know, the front and the aggressive play that they want to have um, and the secondary where those two positions are the ones to me, that's like, they have to be, you know, connected at the highest level and have regard for what the other job is. And they're so different, you know, like, None of them, none of the D linemen ever played DB. None of the DBs ever played D line. So the jobs are different, but um, having that connection between those two groups, I think that's vital, you know, to play like really top notch quality ball. There goes my question about what's more important. Of course, he's going to say team defense, D line. You know, you guys are all dependent on each other. But, you know, I think on, on Sam's question too about like who the most important one is, do you still use sherman chancellor and earl as like the prototypes of what you're looking for because that's the prototype for your defense is it not yeah and i think so knowing they have um what you're trying to do is find some of the traits that a player has that's similar to that you may not you know find every 230 pound safety that can hit like a truck but there are going to be some that have really good you know physicality qualities to them um you may not find you know a corner who's got 
you know, 33s and, and has, you know, crazy good ball skills, you know, like, uh, like Sherm. But what you can find is like how important ball skills are for corners, you know, the ability to, to stop and, and plant. That's like one of the things that made Richard so great recall, like how smart he is. I can clearly remember like we were playing Carolina in the first year I was there and the team had played Carolina when I wasn't there the year before. And he just, you know, leaned over and said, Hey, against this formation, this route is coming. And I went back, you know, to the previous season to look, sure enough, he was right. And they had played him like middle of the year. So it wasn't like the last game and he remembered it, you know, to start the season, but like a player who has that kind of recall, those are traits of like smart and recall, like that are hard to, you know, they don't necessarily show up on tape or in a measurable, but they have unique stuff to them. That's yeah. incredible. I don't think people appreciate that enough about Richard Sherman, like yeah. from our dealings with him, obviously he's smart, right? He went to Stanford. That, that part is evident, but just how much he knows and anticipates from the tape study and how much he, That's right. he knows what's coming regardless of, you know, athleticism or who he's going up against. He's waiting on it before you're even running it, at which point he's, I think he's ahead of the game. Yeah. So like quite often there weren't a lot of targets going over his way. <laughs> like right. Some people just, you know, like, Hey man, I ain't going to go mess with that guy. Like he has the ability to jump things and make, you know, he can make you, he can wreck the game if, if you make a mistake. And so uh, quite often there were times where like people weren't going to take, you know, a specific route combination to his side where, you know, he could see something and go break where it would might've been a little bit untraditional, but it wasn't a gamble. Um, right. It was like, okay, I know what's coming here. Like he wasn't somebody that was going to take a shot if he didn't have good information. Like he wasn't um, just like, yeah, what the hell? I'll give it a shot. And if it didn't work, you'd tell us, no, nah, no, nah, we were in palms. That wasn't three. No, nah, no, nah, that was completely different coverage. We, you know, that was different. So here's yes. a question, because we, we debate this a lot over here. You know, Darrell Revis and Richard Sherman, are, they're our two yep. highest graded corners of the decade, of the last you know, 11 yes. years now. Um, two completely different corners. Obviously, Revis played a ton of man, and Sherman yep. uh, did both, right, and stayed on one side for the most part. Uh, do you have a preference? You know, did you go into games? Uh, we've seen Sherman match up with Des Bryant through the years. Yeah. How do you balance the structure of the defense, moving a corner around versus keeping him on the same side, maybe knowing you can roll coverage the other way? How do you balance? Or do you have a preference in having a one-sided guy versus a guy you're going to match up with the opposing yeah, offense? It's a good question. And both of the guys, like, they're really different physically. Like, right. Darrell yeah. is, like, linebacker strong. Yeah, you know, like could get his hands on you and just eliminate you. Like um, I remember early on that you know, like any help did never went to him as a rookie, and so like there was a call that was made. He goes, "What's that one?" And I remember the DB coach said, "Don't worry about it. It doesn't apply to you." It was kind of like <laughs> Walter Jones. Like he'd ask. I remember Matt Hasselbeck telling me the story. Hey, what does that call mean? It was like a, like they were. It was a chip to somebody, you know, to his side, but like. They had never done it to Walter, so like he didn't really know hey, what does that mean, you know. So like, so there are certain guys that have um, some characteristics that are just so aggressive. And I think featuring uh, Darrell in a system that plays a lot of man to man suits to his strength, and so that's why I think it does matter, you know, how the players you know are featured in the system. Darrell could play man to man almost every snap, you know, like his confidence, his strength, you know, his ability to to stay connected to a receiver down the field. Like that was a really big deal. Now, Richard was able to play down by the line of scrimmage, but the ball skills that he could have, you know, translated at the flash at the very end, he could turn and find a ball 
or a route combination that he remembered in his own system, he could use some of that information and go make a play. So at the end, both of them are fantastic players, but I think that kind of was, I was trying to get back to Tyler a little bit earlier to say, it depends what you have and how you'd feature the guys. Can Sherman play man-to-man? Of course, like no doubt about it, but at his best, he was able to have some vision to the quarterback and make you pay on some interceptions. I think like another inside player who's terrific was Rondé Barber. So like he wasn't a man-to-man player, but like his instincts, his vision, his blitz ability. So like he wasn't going to guard guys tons man-to-man, but like his blitz ability, his ability to see things and react. So finding like, it's kind of the, the funnest part of coaching is finding like all the unique qualities that a player has and then try to fit it in, you know, when you can. So either way, you have to let the guy who has special stuff do things to, you know, like accent what they have. Right. Maximizing the, the ability of the guy that you actually have. Um, yeah. How much has the scheme evolved since those original Legion of Boom days? And how much of it has been like a direct response to this arms race of the Kyle Shanahan's and the Sean McVay's of this world that have just been lighting things on fire throughout the NFL the last few years? Well, a lot has changed. And I think um, early on there was, um, you know, when you play a scheme quite a bit, you know, there'll be, you know, one or two things that can, you know, give it some trouble, uh, you know, finding where, you know, maybe the weakness of a certain coverage is. And then here comes another one and here comes another one. And so, Pretty soon, there's a number of things that can, you know, get you into trouble if you're not careful. So, the tweaks that had to happen, you know, like oftentimes people say, well, that's, you know, the, the version of three and the way you teach it in training camp is good. And then you get into the season and game planning, and that's when the smallest tweaks would come about to defend certain routes or certain people or formations um, that maybe aren't in the playbook. You know, they don't go in on day one, but they're the tweaks that go. So I think it evolves in that space. And then I think the second piece is having more variations um, off of that, you know, maybe some things that look like cover three and then play as something different. And we've had more success um, or creating a big play when you can show the presentation of one thing and then play, you know, something different. So oftentimes in the old days, if the corners were opposite, you knew it was zone. So how do you play some zone where the corners come over? And I think things like that, that helps. Right. All right. I got an important question here. Uh-oh. Game planning wise. Right. Yeah. How, how does one game plan for, say, a Tom Brady or going up against a Brady or a Breeze or an Aaron Rodgers, the greatest quarterbacks of all time? And com- combined with that, do you game plan more the opposing scheme, the offensive scheme, or, or how much do you take into effect what players' weaknesses are, attack weaknesses from a, from a game planning standpoint? Right. I think it's uh, that's kind of where the creativity comes in because as you look to it, you first want to know when you're game planning, who could beat us, you know, in terms yeah. like a player and we're talking about the quarterbacks, who are some of the people that he'd want to feature, you know, by player or by matchup. And then you kind of want to look to say, okay, what could beat us? You know, these are certain route concepts that are going to be a real problem, you know, if it's there. So it's the who is some of the matchups, you know, and so, you know, the Gronkowski tight end matchup is a challenging one because of his size and length or, you know, in Atlanta, the Julio Jones just on the size and the speed. So the who is the first order of business. Then it gets into the what, you know, what are some things that could, um, if you just play the scheme in the same way, this could be a problem. And right. So you want to make sure, okay, you identify the who, 
for matchups. And then the what could be just some offenses will, you know, kind of run their system, you know, to say, hey, this is what we are, we're going to go. But most everybody will try to find some matchups or some keys that they're. And so having ways to, you know, look like it's one thing and play something else, I think that's a big deal. And most defensive coordinators also want to do some self-scout to say, hey, these are some issues that have come up, whether it was week one, week four, week 10, and you've got to be ready for that to come back again because that's where the game plan comes from, from the previous, you know, when coaches are studying other people's tapes. Okay, did this problem get fixed? Right. And you better have it fixed because if you don't, uh, the quarterbacks that you reference, um, they can make you look bad. And so um, they've all thrown a lot of touchdown passes. I know I've been a part of the other side of, uh, <laughs> of their numbers. So uh, they're fantastic players and they're all different, you know, um, who moves, who doesn't move. Um, what are the things that could cause one person problems that doesn't cause someone else? So it takes a lot of time to study that and find that. And that's why having information, more information is good. And so guys like you who can provide some of that information, um, it's a big deal for us. And so we've got to then marry that to the tape to say, can we do that and make those things happen? When head coaches go back to being coordinators um, after their head coach job, the narrative tends to be that, you know, now they get a chance to focus back in on their side of the ball and really um, just go back to, to the thing that they were great at without all the other distractions involved. But I'm curious, like, what have you learned from being a head coach that you think will actually make you a better coordinator going forward? Is there anything you've taken from yeah, the extra Yeah, I don't know if we have enough time to go through it, honestly. <laughs> like, it was, uh, you know, like I said, I um, got let go. So I, I wanted to make sure I was going to apply the lessons, you know, because otherwise, um, you know, some of the mistakes that you made, you want to say, okay, how is this going to help on the next spot? And so um, for me, I definitely had that to say, sometimes as a head coach, you can feel like you want to take on too much. Uh, here you can help, here you can help, here. And really, you know, at the end, make sure you do the things much like a player does. Here's the things I know I can help impact the team the most. And so that's kind of the, the vision I have coming here to Dallas to make sure that um, I can do those things to, you know, help winning. And uh, that's really what it's all about. So um, anything that takes you away from that, may bring it back to the middle to make sure that's that's the main emphasis. So. Um, you get pulled in a number of ways. And I think some of the head coaches that have done it the best who have done the play calling in that spot, I've got a lot of respect for those guys. Right. Awesome. Well, Coach Dan Quinn, appreciate you taking the time. I know it's busy, but uh, appreciate it. And uh, good luck in Dallas. We'll be watching. All right. Thanks, guys. And I appreciate uh, getting to know you and being on with you and uh, look forward to staying connected. Sounds great. Thank you. Hey, guys. Life is full of questions. Like what would happen to my family if something happened to me? Am I saving enough for retirement? And is now the right time to start thinking about life insurance, just to name a few. No one should have to settle for answers to these life-altering questions that involve gray areas or leaving things to chance. And with Western and Southern, you won't have to. Backed by over 130 years of experience gathering insights, building strategies, and helping customers choose the right solutions, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right. I like it, man. I thought he was pretty good. It wasn't just uh, all coach speak type of stuff, getting into the history of the Legion of Boom. And, yeah. You know, he's been there, man. I didn't want to bring up some of the painful Super Bowl losses or yeah, that would have been a bit much. Anything like he's, that. But... I mean, he seemed encouragingly keen to wear that, though, to be like, 
yeah, you know, <laughs> things went bad. And if I don't learn from it, what the hell was the point? Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it is interesting when you go from head coach back to coordinator and how you, you know, bring those lessons and all that stuff. And I think it, it'll be the Cowboys have some work to do on the back end as far as bringing some talent in there and how they work that scheme and all that stuff. So looking forward to seeing that. So appreciate Coach Quinn coming on the show. We'll try to get some more uh, really good interviews as the offseason goes on. But all right, that'll do it for today. Divisional round in the books. We'll be previewing the two conference championship games on Thursday. We'll have a lot more free agency talk. We'll go top five by position on Thursday. And we'll start getting into even more offseason free agency draft i'll have a mock draft coming out next week that's gonna be great my first mock draft of the year wow you ready mm. you ready big week you Study trade trevor lawrence for deshaun watson straight up um would i trade trevor lawrence i don't know we'll are you see. going to in your mock we'll see what happens maybe it'll be a crazy one all right guys thanks for tuning in we'll see you guys thursday